1: Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast, the show where we talk all of the latest news, gossip and events in the world of Formula One. And we relay that back to you for your listening or viewing pleasure, depending, of course, on which platform you choose to follow us on. And guys, we are getting closer to the F1 season. It still feels like an absolute eternity and it feels like a lifetime ago where we said goodbye to the F1 2021 season. Of course, all the controversy that followed after the season end, pretty much followed us for some time, but it seems that one has been put to bed for the time being. And of course, we'll reconvene that as it rears its head towards the start of next season, I would imagine. But until then, there has been some other news stories that have been going on in the background, which of course we shouldn't ignore because this podcast isn't just about Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. Quite often we are told that, uh, you know, the podcast, we don't cover enough of the other teams. However, in this episode, we will be very much covering some of the other teams as well and of course an important piece of news that does feed into how the F1 season is going to take shape for 2022 and possibly beyond that as well joining me on this episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast as usual my co-host Courtney Pine and our newest member Lee Wallington once again so guys once again we're back again talking about the latest news in the F1 world but first things first how are we doing we okay
0: Yeah, can't complain, all is well. I'd just like to say that I am relieved that we're not going to discuss the Lewis Hamilton-Michael Massey saga. Um, I think it'd be nice to take a breather from that. I think think we we can all say that it's been an interesting few weeks, particularly when you uh, do a podcast on Formula One. So yeah, it's going to be a relief to discuss other matters today.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, as fun as it always is to talk about those things, the big controversies and the big stories, it seems that we're going to have a few weeks to wait before we get any further information from the FIA. Of course, the latest on that port saying it was going to be published to the Commission in February and then out to the general public in March. What is that going to mean for Lewis Hamilton's future? Mercedes and F1, we're just going to have to wait and see nearer at the time. Um, and how about you, Lee? How are you doing this evening? You okay?
2: I'm dandy, thank you very much. That's, uh... I'm looking forward to getting stuck in in the latest uh, news and gossip.
1: Yeah, so obviously during the winter break, you don't really get too many news stories. It's usually around about the time where the teams will start to unveil their cars. And as anyone that follows us on social media and our Twitter and social media handles are in the description for those of you that don't already follow us for whatever reason, but that's absolutely fine. You'd have noticed that a few of the teams have already put out their schedules for when their cars are going to be unveiled. So we've already got Uh, I believe it's McLaren, we've got Ferrari, we've got Mercedes. I think there was um, Aston Martin, I believe, with the other one as well. And they're all pretty much around the same sort of time in February, pretty much within a week or so of each other. So that second week of February is going to get pretty interesting when we see all the new cars break cover. So certainly looking forward to looking at those and talking about those. And I think this year we're going to cover pretty much all of those in one big podcast. I think last time... We uh, did several podcast episodes dedicated to each individual car. And whilst that was fun, obviously we had the opportunity to talk about some of their expectations for the 2021 season. I think a lot of you will agree that pretty much a podcast every single day is a lot for us to record, let alone for you guys to listen to. So I think what we'll do is we'll probably just do one, maybe two, depending on if we can do a few in one week and a few in the other. Uh, and just wrap it all up nicely before pre-season test. And I think that would be better for us and for you guys as well. But of course, we appreciate every single one of you that tuned in to our uh, pre-season unveiling reports for the new teams and cars. And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing them break cover. But anyway, let's get into this episode. So a few news stories have been doing the rounds, and probably the biggest one in particular is owing to the format in how next season is going to take shape. Now, of course, I'm talking about the sprint races and... For those of you who didn't follow F1 religiously last season or aren't aware of how the sprint races work, basically they were a short race format, one third distance that would occur on just a few Saturdays last season. So we had free race venues where we had a sprint race that was at Silverstone um, we, at the UK, we had Monza in Italy, and we also had Interlagos at Brazil as well. And the aim of these sprint races was to provide a condensed um race format which the you know the intention was to get the guys to jockey for position to fight a bit more aggressively to try and give themselves a better qualifying position and for the race on Sunday and of course we should mention that there were a few points available to the top top three finishers. mostly at the time it was occupied by the usual suspects but we did get the odd surprise here and there now going into 2022 There's been a lot of uh, debate over whether or not the sprint races were a success and what facets of the sprint races worked and which facets didn't. And I think it's no secret that F1, particularly Ross Braun, has been very, very supportive and very vocal of what he deemed to be a rather successful format. I'm not sure if a lot of people would share his sentiments on this one, but there's always been the intention from F1 to increase the number of sprint races for 2022. We had Stefano Domenicani, um, the new F1 president and CEO mentioning quite recently that he wanted to increase the number of sprint races to six races. And uh, of course they were looking at venues and that he was claiming that pretty much almost every single venue wanted to host a sprint race. And, you know, we don't have to be cynical about it. We know why, because, of course, if you've got more racing, you can charge a little bit more money for the tickets for the weekend. And as a result, um, it, it makes it a lot more lucrative to circuit owners and circuit organizers for these Grand Prix. Um, you know, we're not going to say that they can't try and make more money out of their product. You know, you've got to make the product more attractive. Of course, you're going to charge a little bit more for it. Anyway, let's fast forward to where we are with the news. Now, the news at the moment is we don't have confirmation that the sprint races are going to be on the F1 calendar this season. We've had the uh, 22 or so Grand prix confirmed for next season. So we've got that provisional calendar. However, we need to find out if we're going to have sprint races. And at the moment, there appears to be a bit of a stalemate with the teams. And this kind of centers around the money aspect. Now, for those of you that followed this last season, you would have known that there was a budget cap in place around $142, 145000000 million, something like that. That's now being reduced to $140 million this season. Of course, the intention to bring it down a bit more until we're at a level that is acceptable for all of the teams to compete on equal footing as part of the new regulations being introduced this season as well. The problem is that a lot of the teams um, have had a lot of deliberation over to what they deem to be an acceptable additional allowance, which allows them to cater for the sprint races. Now, last season we're hearing that it was around half a million dollars per team and Whilst that might seem reasonable, some of the teams didn't think that that was enough money. So this kind of brings around this controversy or this uh, discussion right now as to how much of an allowance the team should be given um, if sprint races are going to happen next season, especially if we're going to be having twice as many as we did last season. And right now we're in a bit of a stalemate. We have the uh, we have the McLaren boss, Zach Brown, who's recently written a, a very good piece for the race um, that I was reading. And he's made quite a lot of interesting comments. And I'm going to bring both of my co-hosts into this discussion now, because I have been monologuing for quite a bit, but based on what Zach Brown's comments are guys, he's claiming that some of the teams, one team in particular has requested as much as an additional $5 million to be added to the cost cap um, in order to facilitate these extra sprint races, which Zach Brown believes is absolutely ridiculous. And there's no rationale to prove why that would be necessary. Um, but what are your thoughts on this one guys? First of all, are you were you fans of the sprint races? Do you think that was a success? And secondly, should the teams be given an additional allowance to compensate for these extra races? And if so, how much do you think is acceptable? Do you think 5 million is too much or do you think perhaps uh they need to be thinking a bit lower than that? Uh Courtney what do, what do you think?
0: Uh first of all, on the topic of sprint racing itself, uh given the regulations that the the previous regulations that we went through I wasn't keen on them um I don't think they offered what you know what we hoped would come of it because look we would love to see as much um, as much racing as possible but if you're just watching a load of cars following each other around it sort of uh sort of goes in to the whole stigma that formula 1 regularly faces that it's just a load of cars following each other around the track there, there wasn't enough entertainment there wasn't enough overtaking so, for me, I would like to have seen, similar to last season, three races, have, have sprint races, see if the new cars can follow each other beyond the dirt. Yeah, because that's the biggest question that's coming from this. We're hoping to see a lot more overtaking with these new cars. If we get that, then the sprint races are more likely to be successful. I think the other thing they need to get rid of is the the winner of the qualifying session it's called the speed king it sounds tacky <laughs> let's get rid of that cuz you know if you want this to become a part of these sort of the prestige of formula 1 you can't give it a sort of a, a tacky name you need to give it something that will stick and give it the meaning that you know the the effort that it takes to top or get pole position in a qualifying session it takes a lot of skill it takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of digging with nerves in that moment, controlling your adrenaline. It's its, it's, it's a work of art. And it just, I just think just by calling them a Speed King for getting an accolade, I don't think it gives it the justice it deserves.
1: Yeah, I, I was funny enough. Um, I hadn't I even considered the Speed King award. I mean, and the weirdest part as well is that, as you said, Courtney, they, they didn't want to call it a sprint originally. They wanted to just call it, uh, sorry, not a sprint, sprint race they didn't want to call it a sprint race because they said oh it's not a sprint race I'm like what is it then they said it was a sprint it's like sprint qualifying um and I I I don't know I I never really got on board with it um it, it was fun but as you said a lot of the time it was a bit of a procession it felt like uh the drivers you know they were a bit aggressive at the start they were fighting for a few positions but I think after everyone kind of settled into their rhythm everyone was kind of happy to just accept and hold on to what they had, minus a few exceptions. I think what F1 was hoping for was that some of the teams further down the field were going to try and be a bit more aggressive and go for broke and make overtakes to try and improve their position, which would help in the race. And then that would be helped by some of the bigger teams trying to protect their position and not actually going for it to hold on to it. But what we ended up seeing was the opposite, where everyone kind of just followed suit. I mean, there were notable exceptions. We had Brazil. Obviously Lewis Hamilton flying all the way through the field, getting into the top five and then obviously having to take that five place grid penalty and then went on to win the race on Sunday. And I'm pretty sure Ross Braun and Stefano Domenicali and the rest of them at F1 and Liberty Media will be saying, oh, well, the sprint races were a success because that's what happened. But that was more owing to Lewis being in a position that he shouldn't have been in from qualifying and having a car which was like a rocket ship on the day. And in a weird way, it was like a preview to what we eventually saw on the Sunday, where he blitzed his way through the field and won that race. So that's not really the same thing. Um, You know, the intention was obviously to try and create more interesting racing. I think owing to the current crop of cars that we had, that was probably going to be a lot harder to do. Um, But as a concept, I get it, but I'm not sure if it would be something I would deem a success. But it's certainly something that you shouldn't abandon. I think it's something that can be worked on. Um, Lee, what are your thoughts on this one? Were you uh, a fan of the sprint races? Did you think it was successful?
2: Um, I'm still not a fan of the sprint races. Uh, I, I wasn't when you had me on through last year, and I'm still not. Um, as you already touched on, Brazil, that was more of a fluke, um, just because of the penalty that Lewis had. I think one of the the best-performing drivers from the sprint race or sprint qualifying was Fernando Alonso, that the old fox always managed to find positions, give him an opportunity. But, as you said, most drivers just held position and it was just... It was boring and then the drivers took the risks on the Sunday because that's where the points were. Um, if anything, I, I, I know they're not going to disappear next year or this year, I should say. Um, I mean, next season. But the... They, are, I need. They need to be changed around, like, because it's not sprint race. So it's not a race. It's a sprint qualifying. So what do you call it? Pole position. You don't get pole, pole position from the front. It's, it's all the terminology is very confusing to um, get your head around and present, um, even in this podcast. But you see on the the various media outlets, they don't know what to call the the actual um, pole position, not pole position. Speaking, um, it's. I think it's much better if they just did a sprint race. It's is what it is. You award more points for say the top five, top ten, but you do half points or even give. It's a race. Give them points and not just the top three. Gives them give them more incentive to go out and race, um, and not oh you're going to go out and qualify, which only really incentivizes the top three. But even then, that doesn't really have any impact. Although the one thing we did see from the sp- the spring qualifying was it made the drama more exciting for the Sunday and especially with the, how close it was between Lewis and Max that um, Lewis or Max will get P1 on the Friday. There was positions would reverse on the Saturday. Then positions would reverse again on the Sunday. That was really the only drama at the top of the field. And um, I think the only thing that we got from Brazil was reverse grids could be essentially exciting. If you stood the fastest car to the back, You get them come through the field. Oh, there you go. We've proven concept with Lewis Hamilton getting his penalty. Why don't we just uh, do that then as a top five to the back of the grid?
1: Well, Um, it's funny, isn't it? Because you you say the reverse grids, and this is something that every time it gets mentioned, I'm usually one of those people that will go, no, I don't want to see reverse grids. I don't want to see an artificial method to try and improve the races. But then you end up praising and celebrating a performance that comes from a scenario where you stick the gut the best driver in the fastest car at the back of the grid and then flies all the way to the front and see how far you can get. I mean, in fairness to Lewis, if it wasn't for the four that finished in front of him that were in very good cars themselves and all very capable drivers, he probably would have won that if you would have stuck the slowest drivers at the front. So it's, it's still not a concept that I would want to entertain because I'm not really a fan of it, but I, um. I totally understand that I think for sprint races, if they are going to exist on the calendar going forward, and I'm pretty sure that F1 will do everything in its power to make sure that that's possible, um, it's going to have to be tweaked in a way that rewards more positions than just the top three. And I know people will say, oh, it's a concept that they introduced to try and give it some extra value, but not too much to impact the World Championship. Well, you can argue to a degree it kind of did anyway, whether you like it or not. Um, but no more needs to be done to make it work, if it's going to exist. I mean, um, you know, the race promoter, Stefano Domenicali, he mentioned that all, of almost all of the circuits have expressed an interest to have a sprint race, and it makes sense, you know, to earn that extra money. You want to put on a better show for the fans, give them more racing rather than just watching practice, and more people will want to go. And some, you know, some circuits... You don't get a full crowd until Sunday, even that much if you're lucky. So of course, if they're going to introduce more racing that the fans can see, of course, they're going to be able to get more people in. So it makes sense. Um, I mean, I've heard the six circuits that have been earmarked by F1 for 2022. If we are going to have six sprint races, which is what F1 want, is uh, Bahrain, possibly the secure layout, Imola, Montreal, Austria, Zandvoort and Interlagos again. And um, I suppose... You know that those circuits on paper, some of them sound okay. Um, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts? So do you think that we'll get good sprint racing at those venues? I mean, there's a few in there that I think you could. I mean, the Secure Circuit, possibly. Yeah, Interlagos, yeah. absolutely, definitely. Um, maybe Montreal, but I don't know about the other three. I'm not sure about that. Um, what do you reckon, Courtney?
0: Uh, Imola and Zandvoort are the two that I worry about the most. And yet, if you have a look at Zandvoort, they don't have to worry about people buying tickets to that circuit until <laughs> they not see what happened there last season. I think they could have, like, just practice session, practice session, practice session, and they'd be turning up just to see Max. So I don't think they'd have to... It's strange that they target Zandvoort. And it's a circuit where drivers can't really overtake. Same with Imola. They have that one sec- section, sort of just that sweeping turn on the start line. But... A sweeping straight, sorry. But other than that, it, but it all comes down, you, you know what, if if these if we find that these cars are easy to overtake, overtake each other, then, yeah, I'm sure the sprint racing will work. But we've seen historically that we've, they've made so many changes to regulations in order to encourage overtaking. But these these guys, they're, they're so clever. They always find ways to tweak the car aerodynamically. And with these aerodynamic changes, they create turbulent air. So, you know, you see with the, with the Mercedes, I think the Mercedes are the prime example where historically, even when they're at their best in like 2014 and 2016, they're great when they're at the front. But they couldn't deal with being behind another car because they were designed to be at the front. So you see these kind of issues come along because of the designs of these cars. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm just a little bit dubious about how these regulations are going to change the amount of overtaking we see.
1: Well, I suppose that's going to be the critical factor, isn't it? Um, I mean, we said a lot last season when we were recording podcasts that the biggest failing of F1 when they try to address the balance of power or address the hierarchy uh, and the level of racing that we see is that it comes more from the actual cars themselves than trying to jig around with the regulations or the weekend structure or the racing, Um And I think, you know, first and foremost, as a purist, as a fan, that should be how they should be doing it. And hopefully they will achieve that this year with the new regulations. I suppose um, for some circuits, as you mentioned, like Zandvoort, um, you kind of hit the nail on the head really, Courtney, because you're going to get a packed out crowd there all weekend anyway for Max Verstappen. So I suppose perhaps the circuit organisers will try and charge a little bit more money for the tickets, um, more so than they plan to, because Max is going to be world champion. When he goes, this so obviously he's going to enjoy that homecoming, regardless of how he does next season. Um, it might just be even an excuse to say, "Well, we're getting more racing there, so we're going to charge you a bit more money," and they'll come regardless because they love they love their driver. It's the same as you get at Silverstone, um, it, it, with or without Lewis. You're still going to get a packed crowd at Silverstone for that reason. So, but of course, they're not, they're not planning to have one there this season. Which, are, you know, upon reflection, I think, is probably not the you know it's probably a sensible choice. We didn't see an exciting sprint race at Silverstone. I think we had Alonso and Verstappen and that was about it really. Um, So I want to talk about the money element because obviously this is the main uh, blocking point. I don't think the teams are adverse to having sprint races, although perhaps some of them probably would rather not have them than have them. But, you know, they're probably accepted that the sprint races are most likely to happen, but they obviously want more money or at least a few of them do. I'm kind of getting vibes from... What Zach Brown wrote in his article, hinting at a few of the bigger teams. I don't think it's difficult to try and work out what sort of teams he's talking about. However, I'm not going to name names in terms of it's definitely them or definitely them. But I'm kind of guessing that Zach is kind of hinting towards the likes of Mercedes, Red Bull, possibly Ferrari as well. Maybe Aston Martin to a degree, who may want to spend more money this season Um, to try and find methods to increase the budget cap to give them a bit more of an advantage because I think we should remember that whilst the uh, budget cap has been introduced since last season it's obviously been reduced this year to 140 million dollars and it's going to get even uh, tighter and tighter for these big teams to flex their financial muscles what Zach is basically saying is that a lot of the smaller teams and McLaren you can include in this as well and Williams despite their huge pedigree and reputation they are privately owned teams and obviously, they require sponsorship and funding in order to fund their works, and, and and they can't compete from a financial perspective in the same way the manufacturers do. So they probably don't even reach that spending cap anyway. Um. So with all that in mind, Courtney, do, do you think and Lee as well? I should mention. I keep forgetting you, Lee. Sorry. Um, okay. I, I'm going to come to you actually, Lee, on this one. I should do because uh, you know there are other guests on this show too. Um. What What are your thoughts on what Zach Brown is saying? I mean. Do you think that it's the bigger teams that are trying to hold on to the purse strings quite literally in this? Or do you feel that um, some of the smaller teams, it is within their incentives to try and get this cost cap um, as low as possible without the need of giving any more additional allowances to allow the big teams to try and keep, protect their advantage?
2: Yeah, um, firstly, I think it's very much pointing towards the big teams. Um, if you look at Haas, who finished last in the Constructors' Championship last season... What benefit is to them having an extra five million to spend on the spin races when they don't even have that five million to spend? It's um, pointless for them. Where you look at the bigger teams and go, Oh, an extra five million spent. Yeah, I'll use that. Thank you very much. Uh, May not go towards the spin races, which is what I'm asking for, but I'll I'll use it. Don't worry. Um, So it's just, it definitely logically points towards the bigger teams, uh, probably the teams that you mentioned, Um, be be it one team or all of them. but yes, the, the the teams lower down the Constructors' Championship would definitely be in their incentive to keep the uh, the budget cap lower and not to be raised because it keeps them within their reach and takes away resources from the bigger teams. But if i was put this point back to something Andrew Seidel um, said last year regarding the cost of the damage to certain cars and teams where Red Bull was moaning that, oh, Mac, uh, Max Verstappen specifically cost them a lot due to crashes caused by Mercedes, and therefore Mercedes should pay for the damaged cars because we can't afford it in our budget. But Andrew decided say the whole point of being a um, team management is managing your budget effectively and the res- money in your resources to put aside for damage to the car. So on the same point, as a team manager, you should put money aside for the sprint races to manage your budget effectively. It's tough. You might want to spend it over there, but that's the whole point of managing budget is you allocate the money correctly to you know what you're going to have to use on the swim races. Um, and, and same with the damaged cars. So, so I think that point applies at Andrew's side also last year to this one as well.
1: Yeah, it, it's an ongoing issue. And I, I, I'll be honest with you guys. I, I, I'm i not sure how I feel about this because I completely understand uh, the point that Red Bull were trying to make over you know, damage that they received, it wasn't their fault, you know, and they, but they're the ones that have to pay out, not just buying, you know, new parts or paying for this and everything else, but also the penalties that had to come with the new engines that they had to put in their cars because they were damaged beyond repair. So you get hit with both barrels on that one. But at the same time, I do agree with what Andrew Sider was saying in that, you know, you have to put away a contingency budget within your budget, and I imagine that they do. You know, I mean, I come at it from a professional perspective in what I do for a living that you, you do have to make contingency budgets for things that can go wrong, even things that are unknown risks, things that are beyond your control. But you kind of put money aside to make sure that if something like that does happen, you know, you've, you've got it. Um, and you may end up in a scenario where you may not use it throughout the whole season because you're lucky enough in this case where that doesn't happen to you. But, you know, you just don't know. Um, so... I can understand on both sides. I think the problem is is that you end up in a situation where you start saying, oh, well, you know, if Mercedes have to pay every time Lewis or Valtteri or George, in this case, next season, drives into the back of a Red Bull um, and starts telling them that they have to pay the bill for the damages, F1's going to get wrapped up in so much red tape with legal battles and everything else that the only form of racing that we're going to be able to do is literally when... Um, You get everyone on a scale electrics kit or something like that or running around the circuit, something stupid because it just won't be safe to go because of all the uh, the litigation and everything else. So it's one of those you can kind of deal with. So I'm probably leaning more towards the Andrew Settle perspective that I think teams, unfortunately, just have to deal with it. I mean, yes, Max had a very high repair bill and a lot of it wasn't his fault, but then you also end up in the Ferrari camp like Charles Leclerc, who had a massive repair bill because he wouldn't stop crashing in practice. So... I mean, he's great driver, Leclerc, but Carl—he certainly racked up the, the, uh, the well, the bill uh, when it comes to the damages. So I'm not sure if he got. Then probably, I'm hoping Ferrari includes um, a clause into his contract or something where if he manages to keep the damage below a certain amount, he gets a bonus or something. I don't know, but certainly food for thought. Um, Courtney, did you want to weigh in on this one?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a case of swings aroundabouts really over this whole sprint debate because you know one of the points we we raised at the very beginning, you know we were. We're fearful that teams aren't going to want their drivers to race properly in sprint races, which will affect, obviously, the whole spectacle. But you're going to have a situation where, if you've got the biggest teams that have the most expensive cars at this stage, obviously, the, the aim is for things to become even. But at this stage, there's there's still there's still there's still a gap. So you could have we could be going into a situation this season where you could have Mercedes and Red Bull, for example. Wanting to take it easy in the sprint race because they, they obviously, they've got the more expensive equipment. They're going to be obviously taking the biggest punch financially, which we saw with Red Bull. We think it was how expensive it was to put that car together. So hypothetically, you could have a situation where we go to Interlagos again. say so it's another close battle between Lewis and Max. That's going to be the biggest talking point. That's going to be the biggest focus of the fans going into that sprint race but they're not going to want to, but they're going to be advised to not race each other properly because they don't want to damage their cars because of their budget. So in turn that does damage the spectacle. So it just seemed that there needs to be some middle ground found here in order for us to, you know, consider the fair play that Formula One is trying to achieve, but at the same time, give us a spectacle that we all want to come from any change, any change to the weekend uh, race format. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that went on last season where teams were saying, look, you know, you're kind of in a good position. I know you might want to go to try and improve your qualifying position, but it's not really worth it because, of course, you know, the problem is is that if you wreck your car in the sprint race, you kind of screw yourself for the race on Sunday Um, because, you you know, it's just, that's just how it goes. There's only so much time that they can have to repair cars. And how many times did we see in qualifying last season, like we saw in Monaco? Charles Leclerc in qualifying, wrecking his car, despite qualifying on pole position, and he couldn't start the race. Um, you know, and something similar can happen in the sprint race. You know, we we hadn't had a scenario where someone did something in a sprint race which caused them not to compete on the Sunday, but I'm pretty sure sooner rather than later it's going to happen. Um, so it's certainly one to keep an eye on. Uh, what we do know is that there's going to be a vote on Saturday with the teams, and in order for this to be passed in terms of the current structure the financial allowance, however much that it is, I don't imagine it's anywhere near 5 million, but I'm I'm sure whoever is trying to push for that um, will continue to do so at the last point. And uh, then they'll have a vote on that. And they require, uh, I believe it's eight out of the 10 teams that need to vote on this. So... Um, you know, if that goes ahead, then of course we'll see the announcement of the sprint races happening this season, where of course they're going to be happening, and if there's any additional allowance to the budget cap to compensate the teams for that. I mean, I don't know if Ferrari's power of veto is applicable to this, but I would find it quite funny, um, and I'm putting my neutral hat on, not as a Ferrari fan, but if Ferrari turned out to be that team that wanted the extra money, um, and they used their power of veto when every other team... Uh, votes in favor of the Sprint races hypothetically that would raise a few other issues over you know w- whether or not Ferrari should still hold on to that power because it always comes round every time the uh, Concord agreement gets updated um you know and then they were allowed to keep it surprisingly last time despite they said the fact that they said they would let it go but you know that that would be quite interesting um of course if they wanted to you know they couldn't reach a compromise and wanted to push it back for 2023 only five teams need to agree that but I'm pretty sure F1 are going to try and do everything they can to get the sprint races onto the Canada. We'll have to give it another chance, see how it goes. It might be better next season. They may change the format of them or the reward for certain positions. I don't think you can just reward the top three finishers. but now that we've tried it and they want to introduce more, it surely has to become more of a focal point on the F1 Canada. So we'll have to wait and see, but uh, let us know what you think, guys, about the sprint races. Were you a fan of them last year? Did you enjoy them? Did you not like them? And, um... Let us know what you think about the budget cap allowances. Should they be given more money to compensate for the sprint races, the extra races that they have to do? Or do you think that they should just deal with it in the same way that some of the smaller teams are Uh, not naming names of teams, but you can make your own mind up who you think are trying to push for a higher allowance. And uh, also let us know which races you'd like to see have a sprint race, if you're a fan of it or not moving along. There's been a bit of a personnel change at a few teams, and we're going to start with Aston Martin. Now, we talked about this last week briefly, that Otmar Zafner was leaving the team um, after being there for some time, uh, at a forced India Racing Point, and of course, there were rumours about where he was going to go, was he going to, you know, go to Alpine, was he going to leave F1, but of course, that's left a huge hole at Aston Martin, which needs to be filled, and I'm not setting this up as a pun, although this is a pun in its own right, almost, but Aston Martin have recently announced that they have appointed former BMW motorsport head Mike Crack as their new team principal. Now, well done to both of you. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see. Uh, trying not to break a smile as I say that, but uh, poor old Mike, as soon as he's announced, literally the one thing that I was seeing on social media was prank phone call means most, mostly the most Sizzlack ones from anyone that watches The Simpsons. Um but I'm going to come to you guys. Um, joke, all jokes aside, with Mike Crack, I'm going to keep saying that till I get a laugh out of one of you two. Um, wh- what do you think of this appointment? Do you think it's the right move for Aston Martin? Are you surprised because Mike has does have a lot of experience in racing? You know, a huge experience with BMW and the motorsport programs in Formula E. Formula E fans will remember Mike, um, and of course, he was part of the BMW Sauber team that introduced Sebastian Vettel into Formula One back in 2006. So, um. A bit of a homecoming there, getting to work with Seb again at Aston Martin. But what do you make of this appointment? Is this one that you think will work for Aston Martin? Is it now completed the Holy trinity, if you like, with Martin Whitmarsh as the CEO and, of course, Lawrence Stroll running the ship? What are your thoughts on all of that?
0: I think it represents where Aston Martin are as a team. Um, they have bold ambitions. They want to try something new in order to get to the top. So, you know what, they're in a position now where in my opinion, I think they've lost a very competent part of the management in Otmar Zafner, and they're in a position where, you know, where they finished last season, they they didn't really finish where they wanted to. They wanted to be further up, of course. But I just think with this with this acquisition, if all goes well, they're going to be sort of like touted as like you know, at the very top. They're going to be touted like they know what they're doing. They're trusted. And that that makes them more attractive as a team for other people they want to bring in. So they're they're being bold. It's it's a risky strategy, but this is the whole play from Aston Martin from the moment Lawrence Stroll took over. So for me, as I said, I think it represents where Aston Martin are as a team right now.
1: And I suppose there's going to be a lot of pressure on Mike to hit the ground running. Um, But Lee, in your mind, do you feel now that they've got you know, Lawrence Stroll has the team principal that he wants. He has the team CEO that he wants, sort of running the day-to-day operations of the team. Do you feel like he has all the ingredients now that he would like to sort of take the next step for this medium-term project that Aston Martin are embarking on?
2: Yeah, I think he's um, got the the main core sorted that he can then build a team around. Like you, you, you look at how McLaren have revitalized themselves around. Zach Brown and then people in Andrew Seidel. And that's effectively what um Lawrence has tried to do at Aston Martin of completely ch- change management. As I said last week, of Omar, I think was removed because he wanted that new structure, that's the experience mm. of being from constructors. Because I know they're not a constructor, but they, Aston Martin is obviously still a, a car manufacturer outside of Formula One. So they're being a, a constructor, a car name. We're not just a midfield team. We are a big powerhouse now. Look at these names. We've got these in. We've got experience from other motorsport categories, from other teams in Formula One. We can now take it to the big boys. Uh, And that's very much, as Courtney said, that's Lawrence's whole um, mythology at the moment. So they can now build the rest of the team around these big names. And it's working well with Zach's done at McLaren. So why can't it not work at Aston Martin?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm glad you brought up the Andrew Seidel and Zach Brown dimension. And we shouldn't forget, of course, James Key, you know, it was a huge yeah, part sorry, of, James of McLaren's well, yeah. resurgence um, there as well. That, you know, and it's important. I I think we often underestimate the significance of that triangular dynamic. And we see it a lot in Formula One in the past. I mean, you've got... Uh, just to run a few famous ones, I thought, you know, what we had at Ferrari, the famous Jean-Todd, Ross Brawn, Michael Schumacher dynamic, although Michael was a driver, but he very much operated as a driver and as part of the entity. Of course, with Luca di Montezemolo at Ferrari, kind of run, running that show as well, if you like, because obviously the partnership with the Fiat management and they wanted to break that trinity up, but they held together and it ended up culminating in the second most dominant period in Formula One history, of course, you know, Mercedes being the top one. And you can refer to that one where you've got the Toto Wolf, uh, sort of running the helm there. Of course you have Lewis Hamilton and, um, the James Allison partnership as well. Let's not forget him. Um, and, and you can tr- chuck in Andrew shovel as well into that mix. Um, and, and you know, you've seen the other teams as well. Red Bull have the same thing with Christian Horner, uh, Helmut Marko and Adrian Newey, uh, in that, in that dynamic. So, that seems to be the blueprint for a lot of successful teams in Formula 1's history. And, and I could go back decades and decades, and it's but it's the same dynamic, the same blueprint. And, you know, McLaren have operated in that manner for some time. They've moved a lot of people on. You know, Eric Boulier didn't really, wasn't successful there, you know, during McLaren's difficult period. Of course, Martin Whitmarsh was a part of that for some time as well, and it didn't really work. Um, so, you know, they've, they've come a long way. And now they are competing at a point where they may consider being a championship challenger next season or perhaps a bit beyond that. And Aston Martin are one of the teams that are trying to look to try and repeat this. And whilst you can argue that Otmar Zafner was probably a huge piece of that and possibly could have been for Aston Martin, I think we saw the writing on the wall for some time when the Alpine links were coming up. Um, and he was constantly rebuffing them. he was saying he didn't you know he wasn't interested in leaving aston martin and then of course the rumors about Martin Whitmarsh coming into the team and I don't believe he genuinely knew anything that was going on. I think this was something that was done um outside of his remit that Lawrence Stroll was trying to keep quiet and then of course it happened, and that did seem to be the writing on the wall because. Otmar had a good working dynamic there. He thought he had the trust and belief of Lawrence Stroll to run the team in the way that he wanted with an almost unlimited budget to a degree compared to what he had to do with tight constraints at forced Indian Racing Point with Andy Green, who did a great job there as well. And of course, he's still at that team. For how much longer, we're not sure because of this next acquisition that I'm going to talk about uh, in just a moment. But it seems that like Aston Martin are trying to repeat that sort of dynamic in with the business mindset that Lawrence Stroll is obviously taking into this team now, and he's got Martin Whitmarsh overseeing that he's now got Mike crack underneath him. No pun intended. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm trying my best here guys. I'm honestly trying my best here, but it's, it's, it's so like Courtney was saying to me before this episode, I said, Oh, did Mike get bullied at school or teased? And I said, well, he come from Germany. And uh, from a British perspective, there have been a few German surnames that have done their rounds. I'm not going to repeat on this show because um, you know, they might, there's a bit of a double entendre there. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure Mike was pretty much left to himself as score. Cool. I don't know. Uh, we're kind of just, you know, having a, having a laugh here. But anyway, look, um, all jokes aside, it seems that all of that is now being put in place. So the next question will be, how will this dynamic work going forward? And and they have a driver like Sebastian Vettel who could very much play a huge part in this and, and he may decide to keep him on depending on what the short-term gains are this. Um, Courtney, how significant do you think this uh, reunited... Um, partnership between Mike Crack and Sebastian Vettel will be going forward? Because I imagine that the first person Mike is going to want to consult with in terms of how to take this team to the top is probably going to be Seb Vettel.
0: First of all, I'd like to say fair play to you, Adam, for saying the full name with such subtlety because I personally couldn't do it. So well done for that. Uh, Basically, we've, we've seen in the past that with some... Well, I think, actually, let's let's go straight to Fernando Alonso. Fernando Alonso going back to Alpine, formerly known as Renault. It's that homecoming feeling. Sometimes when drivers go elsewhere and they don't quite feel in their sweet spot, like we always said, but towards the end of his time with Ferrari, maybe that idea of having a trusted figure around you can give you that confidence that you need to get back to the level that you once was because... Seb has always been a confidence driver. If he's given the right setup and he's got the right people around him, he's up where were the best drivers on the grid? His talent hasn't just diminished overnight. It's, it's there's been various things that have gone on in and around him which have led to his downfall. So, you know, with with having the right people around him, you know, people that know his character, what he likes in a car, for example. This could be something that Aston Martin have looked at and gone, you know what? if we are to challenge for championships in the near future, Sebastian Vettel is going to be the guy to take us there because no no disrespect to Lance Stroll, but I think if they're in a championship battle, you're going to look to Sebastian Vettel way more than you are Lance Stroll because Sebastian Vettel has years and years of experience. So I think they're going to try and build a team around Seb primarily. So if they do give him the right car, He's going to be in that zone in order to challenge the likes of Max Verstappen and hopefully Lewis Hamilton in the near future.
1: Yeah, very much so. And uh, we saw Seb was looking a bit more like his old self um, towards the end of last season. Hopefully, for his sake, that may continue. Of course, got the most overtakes last season. Um, so don't recall Seb ever mentioning if he got a big bag of jelly beans or something like that. I don't know, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. Um we should also mention the acquisition that Aston Martin have made in Dan Fallows. Now, for a lot of people who don't know who Dan Fallows is, Dan Fallows was the former head of aero development at Red Bull. So quite a high-profile name, you know, not on the level of Andrew New, but working under that particular remit, a very important figure there. And, you know, I was doing a bit of digging into Dan's history with Red Bull, and, of course, he's been very much involved in their recent resurgence, which has eventually led to a World Championship victory with Max Verstappen uh, last season. And um, on top of all of that, there was quite the controversy regarding um, his current status with the team. He had made a request to resign so that he could... Obviously, he was probably talking to Aston Martin for some time to join them. Uh, This request was rejected last season, and he was put on effective gardening leave, if you like. He wasn't involved in the F1, uh, you know, programs. He wasn't working at the factory. And um, he'd been trying to leave the team for some time. Apparently, he was under contract till the beginning of 2023 it went as far as you know in court um, and it ruled in favor of Red Bull that they were able to do what they were doing but it seems now that they've come to an agreement with Dan and Aston Martin which will allow him to leave Red Bull and forego that gardening leave period that we expected him to be on for the rest of 2022 and he will now effectively join the team as their new technical director for 2022 in April so another huge coup For Aston Martin, bringing in a high-profile person from Red Bull. It's obviously going to bring in a lot of information, a lot of secrets to some degree. Of course, we don't know how much Dan was involved in this new Red Bull car. My estimation would be probably not too much in the latter phases, perhaps in its original conception. Um... But it's quite an acquisition and it will help Aston Martin going forward, perhaps not necessarily in the short term, but going forward as we've, we've heard a lot of people talking about the development of these cars, that they could prove to be quite rapid throughout the season and perhaps 2023 will get a better estimation of who of where the pecking order really is going to be. Um, so guys, I imagine we're probably not religiously invested in Dan's career too much at this point. We probably will be going forward, but... Um, Again, coming back to another big acquisition from Aston Martin, how critical do you think this particular acquisition could be as their new technical director from someone, um, you know, poaching them from someone as illustrious as Red Bull have been?
2: Lee, want to have a go on this one, mate? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know where uh, he's rushing. Um, no, I think it's for Aston Martin, again, it's part of that triumphate sort of thing, where well, obviously this is a full point of you take, if you include Lawrence Stroll. Um, but Every team, not every team, because obviously I don't think Mercedes are very keen, but they would love to have Adrian Newey as a um, designer of their car. But because Adrian Newey is so firmly part of the Red Bull family, he doesn't want to leave that. Um, the best thing is to go and poach someone underneath him who's worked well with Adrian Newey, maybe get a bit of that Adrian Newey magic, that little spark. Um, and that, and having someone obviously the experience that, he brings along and the Adrian Newry magic which they obviously hope he brings along in the secrets of Red Bull will see a bonus it will, could prove very uh, helpful maybe not this year but into 23 and maybe even some upgrades later in the season potentially obviously if how obviously design matches they need to get better in and get up to speed it could be something that fits obviously it does fit Lawrence's master plan but it can enable them to catch up a bit even if, if they're behind obviously they could have already a stunning car and they don't really need Dan fellows because it's like, Oh yeah, we're, good. we're already the fastest car. We, we, we don't know until they start going out in testing.
1: Yeah, certainly a lot to be said. I mean, it will be quite interesting to see how that works, but again, I'm kind of getting similar vibes to when McLaren eventually got James key and it did take a while before James could get up to speed, even, you know, probably to a degree, we're not going to see his full efforts on display until this new car comes out for McLaren in a couple of weeks time. So, um, it certainly has a huge impact how much of that we'll see we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, I'll always think back to um when Ferrari had to let James Allison go, obviously for personal reasons, he obviously wanted to come back to the UK and it ended up being to Mercedes benefit and of course Mercedes took on quite a few people from Ferrari at that time and it's obviously proved to be a wonder wonderstroke for them I and it's the same thing that Red Bull have been trying to do with their power trains getting more Mercedes HPP personnel over to them. It's all swings and roundabouts, but this is kind of the merry-go-round of Formula One where teams like that can really benefit, not just from the expertise and the skills of the people they're acquiring, but from the previous knowledge that they would have picked up from working in other areas. It's so invaluable. It really, really is. Um, For anyone that underestimates it, just go and ask McLaren in 2008, Um, although they didn't exactly acquire that knowledge in the right methods. But anyway, that all aside, um, let's talk about, um, actually no, I should say 2007. Excuse me. Um, get my fact. Get my dates right. Anyway, lot. Let's move on from Aston Martin to Alpine before we wrap this episode up. And Alpine, another team that have gone for a bit of a management structure. The uh, Lauren Rossi, the CEO, is obviously having a bit of a reshuffle at the team as well. Um, and of course, we knew for a while that Alpine were going to go for a bit of a restructure. They hired Mike Bukowski, who. A lot of you MotoGP fans that tune into this podcast will remember that name from his success in that sport. And, of course, I believe he's going back to it. He wasn't officially a team principal. It was more of an advisory role, a de facto role, if you like. So, in a way, Alpine were kind of operating without a captain of the ship, so to speak. But they had other characters. They had Alain Prost, who worked in a very much an advisory consultancy role Um which is a little bit more official in 2019 after he rejoined the Alpine programme um, following on from Renault, when the Renault group came back to F1 in 2015. Obviously, he took on the role at Alpine since 2019, which made its way back into Formula 1 last season. And obviously, there's um been a bit of a restructure with Marcin Bukowski, who's obviously moved on. Um, and now it looks like Alan Prost is going as well. And it seems, guys, that Alan Prost, former F1 world champion we should mention is not very happy about this now according to Alpine their line is is that Alain Prost um, we decided they decided not to stay with Alain to renew his annual contract with the team um, but Alain according to his Instagram claims that that's not the case and that he actually rejected a contract to stay on um, after Abu Dhabi last season and you know, he he had quite a few mixed words to say about uh, Lauren Rossi in particular. With Ellekeep, uh, the French newspaper, this week he was saying that um, that most of the disagreements with where Alpine were going were with Lauren in particular, who he described as wanting all of the light. Or I'm guessing the limelight in this case, um, and that Lauren told him that he no longer needed advice from Alan, and that there's gonna there's a real desire now to put a lot of people on the sidelines. I'm guessing a lot of people that work in at Enstone at the moment already. So, with all that in mind, we've now come to the point where it's very widely reported and rumored that Ottmar Zafna, the former Aston Martin team principal, is now going to be coming over to Alpine as their new team principal. And we'll probably have that, as well as a very much more invested role in the team, perhaps to the likes of someone like a Matty Bonotto or a Toto Wolff or a Christian Horner kind of role, if you like. Um, so co- what are your thoughts on this one, guys? Because a lot of interesting comments from Alain Prost there. I mean, it's no secret that Alpine have pretty much been operating under the Lauren Rossi-Alain Prost partnership. Um, especially with Marcin Bukowski obviously you know, being a de te facto team principal but what are your thoughts on this going forward do you think that this is the right way forward for Alpine and this is helpful if you like in order to execute El plan next season and beyond
0: it's interesting I think that's the best way of putting it I've given the situation I think that it's well known that Any team is successful based on the actions of the top. It always works from the top downwards. So if you've got this drama at the top, it always seeps its way down to the general workforce. So and going into a time which is so vital for Alpine, this is a massive opportunity, if not only Alpine and other teams, to catch up with the big boys. They have to get it right. If they don't get it right this year, they're going to find it difficult going forward. And I just think it's even more vital that they bring in somebody like Otmar Zafnar, who we've seen is able to steady a ship. But even if he does go in, he's going into a potentially volatile environment. So it's going to be tough for him to make an instant impact, I feel. So LP need to sort out whatever it is going on behind the scenes very soon because they could find themselves, it might sound a little bit extreme, but they might find that all this sort of tittle-tattle going on at the top could affect the team's performance at a vital time.
1: Yeah, I mean, despite a slow start last season, they were able to maintain that fifth place in the Constructors' Championship that they got the season before with Renault. So, in a way, you can argue that their season wasn't you know, disappointing. It was successful to a degree. I think they would probably argue that whilst at some circuits they could compete with the likes of McLaren and Ferrari, but they were certainly a league above them um, throughout the course of the season. I don't think there's no shame for them to admit that. But at the same time, when we're talking about um, consistency and we're talking about preserving a project and having that trust and keeping it going, um, you could argue in favour of what Lauren Rossi is trying to do. And this is not a dig at Alain Prost. Um, you know, no one can discredit what he achieved in his career as a driver, but you can go back as far. I mean, when I was seeing this story, I was very much getting vibes from the 90s um, when he was running the Prost team. Um, and ultimately, that didn't prove to be successful as well when he was running it there. And I think I remember Pedro Diniz, the former driver, um, who had a lot of financial backing, almost as much as he was considering even buying the team. Um, let alone buying his own seat, but he didn't want to do it because he took one look at what Alain Prost was doing then. He just didn't have any faith in it being a, a productive commodity. Now, again, that's not to paint a picture to what's going on right now, but when I'm hearing all of these noises that Alain Prost is making and talking to the French press and saying, you know, it's all Lauren Rossi's uh, project, you know, he wants things to go the way that he wants. He won't listen to anyone else. He won't listen to me. He won't listen to anyone else. Part of me feels like, yeah, I get that, but... If Alpine want to be successful and they want to rise up the ranks and compete with the best teams, you can only argue that what they're doing right now is arguably not as good as what some of the other teams are doing. So perhaps a change is needed. Um, Hence why they're looking at someone like Omar Zafner, who I'd imagine was very much sought after by a lot of teams in the paddock for over his career span. So, I mean, Lee, what do you think? Do you think that perhaps it's the right time for Alain Prost to move on to Alpine and let Alpine just... You know, be trusted to get on with it, or do you feel that perhaps it was a bit of a mistake to remove what he considers to be an integral part of the team?
2: Well the I would said obviously sooner the better, because obviously it's better to do it now in January than in February before testing or in March before the first race of the season. But at the same time it could have been better to do it in December after the season. Um so it's It is quite an impact, as Courtney was saying. um, that It's a big change before a big regulation change. So maybe it's best to have had some consistency for at least the first year. Uh, Adam Pross could have been a Nicky Lauda to Mercedes um, to Alpine, but obviously Pross has already had the experience of running his own team. Um, Obviously not trying to start any rumours here, but you do wonder if Pross is part of our Plan of uh, Fernando Alonso. Maybe it's the new professor in town that, um, that has his own reading of the plan and uh, maybe has a, a certain member's ear uh, in who he wants. Maybe there's a clash. They don't know. I'm not trying to gossip, but you know, we know how Fernando goes into a team and this is my team. You listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. You don't. You, you, and there could have been a, a bit of a culture clash between Alain and Fernando. As I said, that that's not me standing in the room. I'm just hypothesising here. So it's a big change for the team, but Otmar, as you both said, has a lot of skills and experience, and a vital commodity. Just raises the question of how long will he get into that? As Courtney said, volatile position and calm it. Um, I, obviously he will get there, but. If he gets there too late or not, is a different matter.
1: Well, I think the important thing to remember is that it seemed for a while that as soon as Marcin Bukowski was, as I said, not officially appointed as the team principal, he was kind of there on a de facto basis. It did feel like it was a temporary thing and that he was only there until Alpine were able to acquire who they wanted. And it seems like Otmar had been on their radar for some time, perhaps it was one of those that just become available when the cracks started to appear in his future at Aston Martin and that they thought, hold on, there's a good opportunity to bring someone of a high calibre in. Um, and they've acted rather swiftly before someone else has decided to come in and bring an Otmar for whatever reason. Not necessarily in Formula 1, but you know, there's always going to be avenues and ventures outside of F1 uh, from a motorsport perspective that would be appealing to someone like Otmar Zafna. Um, but Alpine have obviously acted very quickly to get him in. And, well, and, and again, look... We, we're, we're talking about this as if he's been signed. He hasn't. We should stress that. Sure. But it does seem very likely that that's going to happen and be announced very, very soon. I think Alain Prost said in the interview that he pretty much basically said that he was joining. So we'll wait and see for the official confirmation. But let's entertain the possibility that he is joining them. Um, it does go back again to El Plan. We joke about it, but this is a huge season for Alpine. You know, Fernando Alonso in particular and Esteban Ocon, to a degree, have invested a lot In this project, sort of taking off this season. Now, Ocon's future is confirmed for another season after this one, at least. But for Fernando Alonso, at his age, you know, he still feels he's driving at minimum to 95% of his capacity, feels he's still capable of challenging for race wins and world championships by extension. So, you know, whilst the new personnel coming in won't necessarily have an immediate impact on the current car that's being built, there's a lot of pressure now on the likes of Lauren Rossi, likes of Otmar Zafner and to a degree on the drivers as well to try and make this all come together because if there's already, if there are any cracks forming and perhaps if they did come from Alain Prost and they had to act to get rid of him to try and at least get that concise and clear plan everyone's kind of following, if they're not doing that then it's going to prove, it's going to show very very quickly. You know, so you got Aston Martin trying to rebuild, Alpine trying to do the same thing. It's so important that everyone is aligned and, and doing what they all feel is the right way to go. So, and you mentioned Nicky Lauda as well, Lee. You know, Nicky Lauda at Mercedes proved to be an absolute masterstroke on what he was able to offer to the team from his non-executive position, like Alain Prost at Alpine. But Nicky Lauder in a similar position at Jaguar years ago, for those of you F1 fans will tell you, it didn't really work. And if anything, it ended up being the birth child for what is now Red Bull, so um in a weird way Niki Lauda's had an impact on practically every team in F1 whether it be Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes, he's pretty much the father of all of them um, in one way or another. Um yeah, we do miss Nicky. but uh, as I said, um there's a lot of pressure on Alpine to get this right and um I suppose for Fernando's case, um these acquisitions need to hit the ground running and help him to deliver on L plan if you like. Um we should also mention, speaking of which, um, Austrian Water Treatment Company, BWT, that a lot of you will remember uh, were part of Force India Racing Point and, of course, Aston Martin last year. It's rumoured that they are also going to be joining Alpine as one of their main sponsors. Now, they've been removed from the Aston Martin website as one of their sponsors. We see a lot of jigging around of sponsors from teams. We've had Mercedes, uh, Boss, one of them obviously not staying on. I think Ineos as well. Um, and then, of course, Ferrari. There's no more Mission winow. On there, and they've obviously brought in Santander, so it looks like we're going to see potentially some pink on this blue Alpine. So, what do you make of that one, guys? Are you looking forward to seeing that? And and if any, how much pink do you want to see on the Alpine next season, uh, Courtney? What do you think? You're already sort of grimacing for those of you watching, uh, not watching on YouTube. Oh
0: no, 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 no! Because oh, the thing is, the, the Alpine was one of the best liveries for me last season. It has to be subtle. So you know the way that Aston Martin tried to do it last season, but then that, that pink Burgundy for me ruined the Aston Martin livery. So it's it is it's like with with the with the BWT impact on the livery, you either go full pink or not at all. Because the, the, the pink full Cindy slash racing point that stood out obviously for what and you know, and it had this part in you know, the, the the hearts of the fans because it was fully pink. But the Alpine livery is actually beautiful. And I just feel if you, you put a splash of pink in there, it's going to spoil it.
1: Yeah, I thought the Alpine was actually the best looking car last season. And the only reason why I gave it that is because of that pink on the Aston Martin. Now, you know, call me a cynic, but I'm hoping the Aston Martin this season will have the yellow stripe on there as, as it does with the other race cars. And if anything, as good as the car looked, I thought it was overshadowed by the Aston Martin safety car that we saw that had the right Aston Martin colours on. They didn't have any pink on it at all. So um, I, I hear you on the Alpine front. I, I do think there is a way where you can introduce pink elements to that car and it's still looking as good as it did last season. Um, it just depends on how much. Uh, Lee, what about you? Are you Do you agree with Courtney's sentiments on that? Or are you looking for another pink panther car like we saw with uh, Racing Point a couple of years ago?
2: Well, yeah, I was going to say, I get the jokes out of the way. Is it a Pink Panther strike back or is it more of a new hope? Um, sorry, I couldn't resist uh, my Star Wars uh, <laughs> references good. there. Very good. Like it. Um, but no, the, the Corny's right. The, the Pink Panthers stood out um, at Racing Point, Force India, and good marketing. And the cars have all been relatively similar dull colours, so a nice pink is bright. But the Alpine colours were really good last year. Um, however, if you look at um, BWT sponsorship in other se- racing series, they really go for the pink cars. That's really what they want from a sponsorship side of things. So I think they'll be definitely asking for that full pink car. Um, although Alpine obviously has its own color scheme and branding to consider more than Racing Point or Full Cindia um, did as a comparison. Um, there will definitely, I think, there'll be a, a bit more pink on there than say the Aston Martin that we had last year. But yeah, as you're saying, it's I'm concerned. Obviously, how ugly it could look. Um, but BWT don't, don't want an ugly-looking car. Um, no does uh, obviously Alpine itself, but it makes it an interesting um, quandary. But I really personally want a full pink car back. Uh, just miss that vibrancy on the grid, They're not all just more greys and reds and dark blues and purples. gives Well, yeah, look at Eddie Jordan's and the Jordan. Nice, bright yellow. Give me my bright pink car back.
1: <laughs> yeah. Even the
2: Renault, yeah. ironically. Mm. Yeah, actually, the Renault. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about the Renault. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I do miss having a yellow car on the grid. Mm. Um, I'll be honest with you. I know... You know, you've got some colours out there. I mean, you've got the McLaren, obviously, a very bright papaya colour on there. If anything, I'd prefer them to return to the old um, black, white and silver that they used to have back in the... But I know the association with a cigarette brand is probably why they've moved away from that, fair enough. Um, You know, I I can't argue that. Um, But yeah, it it certainly is an interesting dynamic with that. Um, You've got the Alpine, you're very much uh, strong on the blue you know, as part of their identity and their image, and then you've got BWT uh, likewise with the pink. I suppose there is room for compromise, but then you could argue perhaps BWT weren't happy of the lack of pink on the Aston Martin, which may have led to their departure, not necessarily linked with Utmar Zafnir. So it's food for thought. and uh, drink for thought. Yes, quite literally well done, yes. <laughs> very, very good. I like it. Um, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, we don't have long to wait. Uh, let's put it that way until the new cars you know it it feels like an eternity but it is getting closer every day and I cannot wait to see what these new cars look like I mean there's been stories about different liveries that are the F1 and FIA are asking the teams to introduce for the two test sessions one of which we won't get to see the other one we will to some degree so we're not going to go into that one that's all a bit strange but anyway guys That's been our little bit of a news roundup next week. We are going to be doing, um, a different kind of F1 podcast. Now, if you remember the last week, we actually did a, would you rather episode? We were playing the, would you rather game and putting an F1 spin onto it. A lot of you seem to enjoy that one. So we're going to be doing something different and we're going to be doing an F1 version of the big fat quiz of the year. So we're ripping off another game concept. Sorry, Jimmy Carr, but we're not going to be having him on that one. Unfortunately, um, I won't make the obvious jokes. But that being said, we're going to be doing that, an F1 version of that, where we're going to be having Courtney and a guest of his compete against Lee and a guest of his choosing as well to see who has the bigger F1 knowledge on the 2021 season. So if you are looking forward to that and want to see that one, All you got to do is subscribe to the DNF1 channel so you do not miss it as soon as it comes out next week if you haven't already. And, of course, make sure to follow us on your favourite podcasting platform as well. If you have enjoyed the episode, don't forget to leave us a like and a nice review as well if you think we are deserving of it. But until next time, guys, all that's left to say is please stay safe. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Take care.
2: See you soon. Goodbye.
0: Podcast Network.